1909, New Jersey. A Nickelodeon somewhere in some town. Folks are gathered to see a film, one most of them have seen already, but they'd probably see it a couple times more. They loved it. Shh, quiet, it's starting. The theater owner, an immigrant from Europe, sunk his family's savings into this place, into this movie theater a couple years ago. Its success is recent, very recent. His risk paid off. And as he looks over the small crowd from behind his projector, he smiles. The magic pours from the screen and sweeps the upturned faces of his patrons, men, women, and children. (laughs) This particular film is about a couple getting locked out of their house, their toddler left alone to wreak havoc inside. Comedy ensues as they try every which way to enter. It's a riot. The audience loves it. They laugh at all the same moments they laughed at last week. It's the most popular film he's ever shown in his humble theater. The stars of the film have even come to this showing, just as excited to see their names on screen as the crowd is to see them in the seats. What the... All right, everybody, clear out. Clear out. Everybody is leaving now. No, this can't be happening. They found him. They finally found him. I found the projector room. In a panic, he tries to lock the projector room door. But the thugs are many, and they're armed. Open up. Open up. The thugs are smashing their hulking forms against the flimsy door. Please, please, you you don't have to be doing this. It's only a matter of moments before... They're in. One of the thugs makes like Bambino and takes his Louisville to the projector. No, 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 don't, don't, please, don't. No, no, no. The theater owner is huddled, cowering. He can hear the destruction of the seats smashing and breaking. The thug with the gun laughs. We're not going to kill you, buddy. We're just here to make things right. I found one of the actors. The male actor bruised, is dragged away. They'll break his face, make sure he won't be acting for a long time. The other actor, she's gotten away. Thank God. Another thug grabs the theater room, yanks him up, cuffs him. Nobody's flashed a badge, because nobody here is a cop. The man is dragged to the door. The thug with the gun lights a cigarette. The wizard sends his regards. They all laugh, then exit the building, unspooling the incredibly flammable rolls of film behind them like ribbons of black confetti. The thug with the gun drops his cigarette. The air explodes with heat. The place goes up in seconds. They walk the terrified man out slowly, making him watch as his livelihood burns to the ground, all in the name of the man who sent the brutes, their boss, the rich and famous, untouchable and ruthless wizard of Menlo Park, Thomas Edison. I'm Demetra Carreno, and this is Solid Gold. The Insane Stories of California.
William Dixon collected his dirty nickels. He hated those nickels. They felt too warm and even sticky in his hands. He emptied the machine of coins and readied it for the next horde of sleazy viewers. Usually men, sometimes teenage boys, all of them regulars. The flicker box. The pop-on-by peep show. The crank. That last one really made Dixon groan. Whatever the hell they called it, it was actually called a mutoscope. A flip book illuminated by a light, operated by hand crank, hence the crass nickname. And it gave you a little show. This particular one was of a shapely woman, undressing ever so slowly, not noticing at all that there were prying eyes on her like hungry mouths on a buffet, engorging on her flitting, crudely lit image. Five cents a pie. Next in line, keep them coming. No double viewings. Once you're finished, get to the back of the line. No lollygagging, I mean it. This is what Dixon had to do to get by. Come on. William Dixon, the inventor of the motion picture camera. Dixon was one of the many inventors working under Thomas Edison in his lab, a lab Edison built specifically to gather great thinkers and put them to work. After great success and all the fame that came with his earlier inventions, Edison, I'll be calling him Ed, went into the business of calling shotgun. Every time somebody came along and so much as placed their hand on the passenger side front door of the vehicle of modern invention, Ed would tackle them to the ground and beat them until they bled money. What the hell does that meandering metaphor mean? I'll tell you. Ed was a patent hoarder. Him and his group of conceptual inventors, machinists, and electricians would design and tinker and experiment, and whenever they had something they thought might work, they rushed a patent. And they had hundreds of patents for all kinds of things. That way, whenever someone else came along and tried to further the landscape of industrial creation, odds were that they would use at least some bit of patented tech and would therefore have to pay up. Think of it this way. Let's go back in time to the first ever baker. He's just finished baking the first ever loaf of bread. Now imagine he runs over to the patent office and slaps illegal first dibs on the whole idea, the technology of baked and raised dough. Now, whenever you want to make a sandwich, you have to pay this guy a dollar. You want a burger? Pay up. Pizza? Pay up. Birthday cake? Pay up. And you can't even make your own bread because he's patented the process of making bread as well. Sourdough? Pay up. Rye, pay up. Seven grains, ew, gross, pay up. Ed did the same thing with motion picture technology. The cameras, the projectors, the concept of moving images for entertainment. Dibs, pay up. It's mine. Except it wasn't his. It was Dixon's. Dixon, with some guidance from Edison, invented the technology for the motion picture camera. But guess whose name wound up on the patent. Yep. Guess who got all the credit? Yes, ma'am. Guess who made bank on the technology? Right again. Ed, Ed, and Eddie. Guess who was royally 
pissed off. Next, step right up. Yep. But this wasn't the end. In fact, these were the perfect circumstances for a revolt. Led by a ragtag group of filmmaking pirates, the revolution against Thomas Edison and his iron fist of legal red tape and stick-wielding thugs would go cross-country and end up in a place where there were no laws, no infrastructure, a place far from Ed's greedy fingers. A place called... Well, I'm sure you figured it out by now. Down here. April. 1912, New York City. Come on, hurry. Let's go. A small man stands framed in a tall doorway, beckoning to his friend to hurry up and get inside. We're about to get started. This small man is Carl Lemley. 5'2", German accent, middle-aged, unassuming. Lemley closes the door behind his last arriving guest, but not before stealing a glance around checking to see if anyone has followed them. No one. He shuts the door. Locks it. The meeting has begun. In attendance are some names you've probably not heard of. Mark Dintenfoss, David Horsley, Charles Bauman, Adam Cassell, William Swanson, Pat Powers. God, what a name. They're all here because Lemley and them all have something in common. Not only their love for motion pictures, but also their hatred of Thomas Edison. Lemley sits. Cigarette smoke encircles above the men like a grand blue halo. Angels of mischief they are. And a hush falls across them. Pay attention now. Carl Lemley presents them with a notion. An idea to combine their power, pull together their resources, and create something bigger and better than its parts. A force of creative, go-screw-yourself energy that can actually hold its own in a fight against Edison's motion picture patents company, against the wizard himself. After discussion and argument and hole-poking and epiphanies and lots of smokes and more than a few drinks and some signing of papers and firm shaking of hands, they have something. Something that would go on to change movies irrevocably. They went into that room, a group of independent film producers with a dream and a grudge. They came out of that room as the Universal Film Manufacturing Company otherwise known as Universal Studios. With Lemley at the head as president, they were ready to take on their sworn enemy, the wizard, no, the monster of Menlo Park. So, they headed west. It wasn't long before Ed caught wind of what was going on. Every time he heard the name Lemley, he felt like gagging. Lemley was the stone in his shoe, the hair in his eye, the splinter in his ass. Ed sued Lemley over 200 times, and now he hears of Lemley's 
own posse, a posse of patent-yanking thieves who call themselves a movie company stealing across the country with his technology, his legal property, and not only that, they've got a whole pirate's crew with them now as well. Paramount, Warner Brothers, all grabbing what they could carry and running away like a purse snatcher down a darkened alley. Well, Ed was no helpless geriatric. At least that's how he saw himself. No, he had something most helpless geriatrics don't. An army of brutes at his disposal. And he was prepared for war. So, how do you fight a seemingly all-powerful man? who apparently had the law on his side? A man who had essentially built his own mob? Because that's really what this was. Edison was a mob boss who was praised in the papers, touted as the greatest American genius in history. He was called the most influential inventor who ever lived. They wrote countless articles, and there were even works of fiction that painted him in an almost holy light. As the savior of humanity, I'm not kidding. Go look it up. How do you beat a man called the wizard? Well, you can begin by getting a head start. Lemley and the others, Paramount, Warner Brothers, grabbed what they could and they ran. They ran as far away as they could, not because they didn't want to get caught. I mean, they knew what went up must come down. No, they ran far away to buy time. So they went as far away from the East Coast and Edison's New Jersey home base as they could go. Somewhere, the weather was just right. The land was diverse and laws were mere suggestions. A place called California. I like to imagine it unfolding like the lawman after Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. The posse always on the horizon, always getting just a little bit closer every day, every hour. Our heroes never having time to stop to catch their breaths. No time to stop and eat or drink. No time even for sleep because the posse never sleeps or eats or drinks or stops. They are relentless. And this isn't far from the truth, but it's not nearly as cinematic ironically enough. Because while the posse hunted, Lemley and the other film companies were setting up shop, putting up sets and cranking out movies faster than you could count them, or at least faster than the posse who was chasing them could run. It took a long time for those thugs to get to California, to what would soon be known the world over as Hollywoodland. The pirates' plans were working. Cut. Let's reset. A hot set. Hollywood land is in full bloom on this particular corner of the lot. Blazing bright lights, a shimmering set, glamorous actors in full garb, crew members milling about to redress the scene as quickly as they can. But little do they know that two of Ed's cronies are watching them through super-lensed binoculars. In the driver's seat, a private eye. In the passenger seat, a thug. It's all very noir. Come on, let's storm the set now. I said shut up. I can't see over all your yammering. The P.I. is taking notes on what he's looking at. 
and he sees a lot. The brute beside him rings his fingers over the rough metal of his well-used crowbar. He's getting antsy. To hell with your note-taking. We need to take this set down now. I understand that, but this isn't some back-alley, single-room studio house, all right? We are not dealing with a 25-seat Nickelodeon anymore. You can't just waltz in there and beat up 50 people and actors and burn down a whole city block. We need these notes to take to a courtroom. That is where we beat them. What were in those notes? So-called studios were buying unlicensed equipment from outside the U.S., equipment that infringed on Edison's patents. They were running away from paying their licensing fees for using the equipment, for showcasing what they made with the equipment in theaters that were not paying their fees to Edison. The bread metaphor, remember? You couldn't breathe on a camera without Edison demanding money from you. A bully roaming the schoolyard, turning kids upside down, demanding lunch money, demanding a tax. You pay me so I don't kick your ass. You pay me because I own this schoolyard. Well, the kids revolted. There were way more angry filmmakers than there were Edison's. Now they were stealing their nickels back. Besides, Edison wasn't the only one with a legal argument. The pirates took to the courtroom. Order! Order! There will be order in this court. Now, back to the matter at hand. They came back at Ed's lawyers with spine-tingling stories of destruction and abuse, of violence and intimidation. They came in saying that a patent grant had to be limited. Otherwise, nothing would ever get done anywhere and could prove a perfect breeding ground for monopoly. And the court took all of this very seriously. All the wizard's horses and all the wizard's men could not walk back from this evidence. Because all that time and energy remaining so cutthroat legalistic about maintaining their monopoly, they proved they in fact did have a monopoly. Go figure. Courts ruled in favor of the Hollywoodland pirates. Quote, a restriction which would give to the plaintiff such a potential power for evil over an industry which must be recognized as an important element in the amusement life of the nation. Under the conclusions we have stated in this opinion is plainly void, because wholly without the scope and purpose of our patent laws, and because, if sustained, it would be gravely injurious to that public interest, which we have seen is more a favorite of the law than is the promotion of private fortunes. In other words, we totally see how this maniac abused patent laws and valued his financial gain above the incredible power of joy that this technology could bring to the nation and the world. And that's not right. No, it's not. What the industry became over time is another story, a lot more upsetting and sad than this one. Even more upsetting, it's sort of tragically ironic. But this is an origin story about sticking it to the man, of not letting the big bad bully get away with his big bad bullying. It's a story of letting your passions guide you in spite of impossible odds. It's a story of doing a little bit of bad 
for the sake of something very, very good. It's not often that we hear stories of renegade lawbenders with a dream to just bring a little light to the world, winning so epically over toxic, power-vicious money mongers, is it? I mean, with all the drama and chase sequences and brutality and bright and shiny movie stars, it truly is a Hollywood ending, isn't it? This episode was written and narrated by me, Demetra Carano, and produced by myself and my sister's adorable husband, Brody Worrell. Well, five episodes into this season, and I hope you've learned a lot and had some fun. If you have, tell your friends and family about us, and be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a good review. It helps get the show discovered and keeps us making more. Do you know a piece of wild and weird California history that might make for a good episode? DM us on Instagram and we could make an episode about it. That'll be at solidgold underscore podcast on Instagram. And while you're there, let us know how we're doing. We would love to hear from you. Let us know what your favorite episode has been or just say hey. We'll be taking a short break, but we will be back in two weeks for the final four episodes of Solid Gold. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out. Small details, including some dialogue and atmosphere, have been embellished for effect. This has been Solid Gold, the insane stories of California, a Voice in My Head production. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.